hope you die. That'll be the day. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. My name is Anders Holmes, and joining me over Zoom is my older brother, Adam, in the United States. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I'm quite hot. There's a fan behind me. I could be hotter. I could be in a hotter part of the country. So, you know, it could be worse. Yeah. But, um, it's sticky here in Massachusetts, so I apologize for the audio quality, but if I didn't have this fan on, I would be milking. So I'm... Um, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have the fan on, you'd be dying. You'd be dead. Uh, well, you know, that, that might, might be slightly overstating it, but um, yeah. but, uh, but I certainly would be a lot, uh, a lot more uncomfortable than I currently am, which is sort of moderately uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Anyway, how are you? I'm good. I'm well. Uh, weather here is on the rainy side, but it seems... Does anyone be... care? No. <laughs> okay. Um, it's been it, it, we we have been sort of getting because it's been like dry since like April up until now. So I feel like we're just getting like three months of rain like all at once. You've tuned in to the weather podcast with the Homer's brothers. Um, <laughs> great. Well, yeah. uh, I'm glad that's probably Happy good summer, everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a terrible time. Yeah, but anyway, look, we're here to talk again. We've been a, it's been a, been a while. Uh, and been a while. Uh, uh, it has. Um, We've, you've had stuff going on it's the summer there's been things and stuff i've had things and stuff um we went to monument valley together which was so a lot we, of fun we're gonna have some kind of episode or video about that at some point yeah. so keep your eyes peeled folks yes um, we're gonna try and get um, our youtube channel up and running again yeah um and then um yeah what else has happened um it was nice having you here um uh, I miss you, man. Um, and um, yeah, there's just, you know not not a lot of news. Um, but uh, but but what did happen last time we recorded a top ten was we were kind of pressed for time, and so we sort of raced through the yeah the, we rushed the through. Um, and so I'm very sorry about that, listeners. But today it's a Sunday, so we have no commitment, so we can just take our sweet ass time with the 1950s, which I think is what they deserve. Yeah. Well, let's not take too much time because people might click off after like two hours of us talking about. On number nines. This is very true. Um, but I'm really excited because um, the 1950s is probably my favorite decade of film. At least it has the most, according to, I think, according to my letterbox, it's the decade in which I've watched the most films, apart from maybe like the, the 2010s or something. I mean, you know, because I went to the movies a lot then, but I think it's the decade in which I've seen the most movies. Now, a lot of that is Westerns. Yep. This was a very rich decade for American Westerns, but it's uh, but there, but there's a whole slew of great movies from all over the world that are being made at this point. And I, I think just like historically, it's a very interesting decade with the Cold War and with, um, you know, both on both sides of the, uh, you know, of the Iron Curtain. And also, I mean, it's, um, it's one of those, it's really the decade where the, the, the current, you know, tension between cinema and television kind of really takes, like really is born and cinema tries to respond and you know, Hollywood tries to respond to TV with, you know, projects that, yeah. uh, you know, are big and exciting to try and, you know, lure audiences in. And the studio system is, you know, break, it's basically dead at this point. And, um it's all you know hollywood is sort of um yeah what would you say like sort of re-examining itself um and um and trying to like figure out what next and yeah, yeah. so you know and there's there's actually three great movies about hollywood that are made all in the 50s um which may or may not be on our list you know uh, sunset boulevard 
in a lonely place and um the bad and the beautiful all of which are fantastic and they yeah. look uh, hollywood like looking at itself um i've seen so two out of three of those movies which one haven't you seen uh the bad and the beautiful oh that's so good man you need yeah. to see it I've, mm. i have been meaning to watch it i have like i did buy it on apple tv uh, apple tv a while ago so i'm gonna try and give it a watch, watch at some point. that film you will love it yeah. anyway so yeah hollywood introspection cold war politics um TV. cinema was kind of booming at this time yeah yeah you know i mean yeah. like, there's french, french new wave post-war you know it's, it's recovered after the second world war yeah and also like i do feel like ingmar bergman i feel like the main sort of one of the sort of main peaks of his career was in this decade i feel well yes we may yeah. or may not be talking about that yeah. um so okay so should we get into it because um i'm yeah. sure we can cover a lot of these other basically one one thing i will say is that i found this list impossible to make um and well two things one i found that it's basically impossible to make and if i had to make it again tomorrow it would be completely different i could make a whole different top 10 list that would yeah. be equally representative of the decade you know without any of the films that i've talked about so that's my first point and my second point is i went with my head over my heart for my number one. Oh, you did oh mm. interesting We'll uh, we'll see. We'll see that, where uh, where that's gonna go. Um, yeah. So, uh, wait, who? I can't remember who actually who started last time. I think it might have been you. Probably started. Why don't you go first? I'll go first. Okay. So at my number ten is a film I recently rewatched a while ago on the Criterion Channel, mainly because I hadn't seen it for a really long time and I really wanted to watch it again. And then I was reminded how great the movie is. And it's Sidney Lumet's directorial debut, 12 Angry Men. That, yeah, that is a fantastic film. I remember watching that for the first time as a kid and um, loving it. That yeah. is not on my list. So uh, well done. We've already not overlapped. We haven't I overlapped yet. I hope, I hope we don't have too many overlaps in this decade because there's so many films to talk about. Yeah. And um, so this is great. So yeah, 12 Angry Men, take it away. Yeah, so um, for those who are not too familiar with uh, 12 Angry Men, it's essentially... About 12 men. It's about 12 men locked in a room. They're all... It's they're members of a jury in a murder trial of who... And, and it's a murder trial, to, and if they all vote unanimous... You, ma, you, you know what? Yeah. You unanimous, have a stroke. <laughs> I can't remember the... Unanimously! The unanimously votes guilty the boy who's on trial for killing his father is going to go you know he's going to get sentenced to death you're killing so, your father larry <laughs> and then so they go to deliberate and pretty much the entire table believes that the kid is guilty except for one man uh juror juror number what's his name juror number eight played yeah. by uh henry fonda he's not like when he says like he's not saying i don't think the boy did it i just he sort of he thinks maybe he didn't do it and they just and it and the whole film takes There's place reasonable, inside reasonable doubt reasonable doubt and they start going through the facts of the case and he starts to and you know he's trying and he slowly convinces everyone in the room that this, that this kid didn't do it and it's also there's and also there's like three or four people who are very like staunch in agreement of that this kid is guilty that this kid did kill his father one of them is Lee J. Cobb, who has a, who's, it, his sort of backstory is that he has a very sort of bad relationship with his son, and they had a very violent sort of, you know, confrontation at one point, and they don't really speak to each other that much. And then you have... Um, Ed, Ed Begley, the, he's the racist one, right? He's not the racist one. It's actually, uh, it's uh, juror number 10, Ed Begley. 
That's what I said, Ed Begley. Yeah, sorry, I didn't quite hear you that well. Sorry. Um, and then there's E.G. Marshall, who's juror number four, who's like a Wall Street banker or something like that. And he's sort of he listens to everybody when they say like why this this kid is not guilty but you know he still kind of believes like okay let's just you know, he still believes that the kid is guilty either way and it's an interesting film it's not a who done it the film is not like trying to sort of prove that this kid didn't do it he might have done it we don't know but it's a film about facts it's a film about people debating facts of a case or anything and trying to you know understand the whole thing because there's a really interesting moment in the film after Henry Fonda's character says, I don't believe the kid did it, and they all go around the table why they think the kid is guilty. And most people give really bad reasons. And I think that's and and I think it's a really interesting film about how people, you know, you know, are challenged in sort of coming like figuring out the facts of things and actually like come up with a better well, reason. Confronting, yeah, confronting a deeper yeah. sense of what a what a, what reality is. You know, it's it's yeah. a film I think that that is very relevant for our time because it is that thing of, yeah, on the surface, a thing may seem a particular way, uh, or you can just believe something that you've been told because it's easy to believe, whether it'll be yeah. told by cable news or some someone on the internet or something, or you can actually look into it and be critical. I mean, I think it's a film about facts, but I think it's also a film about critical thinking and empathy. Yeah. And yeah, I think exactly. those, those things are, um, you know, they don't sound necessarily like, I mean, it's, it's also an amazing fact that, this film takes place entirely inside one, excuse me, takes entirely inside one room. You know, it takes place entirely inside one room. You know, in, in Rear Window, for example, which yeah. is another one room movie, you have, you know, exteriors and other apartments and the camera can move into them. But here you are bound by the four walls of this room. Yeah, yeah. Because there's like a bathroom sometimes that you go to. You go yeah, to they go into the bathroom occasionally. But like, for the most part, we just are in this one tiny room and there's fans it's hot it's raining at one point like, one like today yeah like today and one person just wants to get going because he wants to get to a baseball game which is kind of funny he just says like he's guilty all right he's not guilty like let's just get this over with because i got a game to get to and things like that isn't and ed Binns in this film who ed isn't his name ed Binns? he's a really good character actor he's in pattern and some and yeah and, he uh, plays moves he plays juror number six yeah, I like him. It's just yeah. a great cast. Like, it's yeah. such a, a good ensemble. Yeah, and also as like, a, you know, from a technical and creative perspective, it's actually a very well-made film. Like Sidney Lumet, yeah. you know, you know, he he, it's a film t entirely in one room, but he still makes that film very exciting in the way that he moves the camera and the way that he frames the actors. Like, there's a very interesting thing which I read on IMDb where the film starts like quite high the camera like films from like a very high angle then it like towards the like in the middle part of the film of cameras at like the level of you know all the actors and then by the end the camera's quite low and claustrophobic which i think is quite interesting and i think um uh, about that. spike lee he's listed this film as a film that every like aspiring filmmaker should watch and i also think like it's a film that people in film schools should watch as well in regards to blocking and filming and you know because you know it's it's incredibly well made for what it is yeah well i think it's a great choice uh at number 10 um but let's move on because as i say we have got to get through this list and there are going to be 20 maybe 20 less than 20 but a lot of interesting films to talk about and uh we do not have the time um well our listeners don't have the time we do um so i'm starting off with uh an indian film uh is a 1955's pata pachali directed by satajit ray and it is the first film in his um you know socio-realist apu trilogy uh you know about the travails of 
you know, very, very poor family living in rural India. Um, and it is an unlikely film to have, you know, first of all, been a hit outside of India and to have kind of survived in immortal form. You'd think, like, you would imagine that this would be something that would be kind of only really known by the most hipstery of the most uh, committed film uh, cinephiles in India itself. But, you know, this film had, this film was played in, um, you know, it, I think it played at MoMA uh, in the 1950s, you know, it was seen quite widely. Um, and, you know, Ray, I think was given, was he recognized with some kind of Academy Award? He certainly got an honorary Oscar at one point, you know, so he became part of this sort of international filmmaking um you know, confraternity. Um, yeah. It is. It is an astonishingly well-made uh, film. Um, you know, black and white. Um, it is. You know, it is about you know striving together to survive. You know, poverty. The the sort of the 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 ways that loves. You know, bonds are tested. Um, you know, by the. Um, you know, by the hardships that these, um, you know, these people go through. Um, and, um, you know, it, it has these, there's some, the, the images that Ray uh, and his um, cinematographer, who I'm just trying to look up here, uh, Subrata Mitra, um, come up with are just so eloquent and so uh, sort of, you know, they're, they're both intimate, they can be sweeping. There's a great scene with a train. Um, that, that arrives, you know, as the, the kids are playing in the field, um, you know, it, it it's, it's just, um, uh, you know, in terms of filmmaking beauty, it's, it's, um, it's right on the money. Um, the, the, the couple of other things that sort of really stand out when it, when, in terms of the film style is that the, um, a little bit like the third man, you know, in the forties has a particular sound you associate, you know, with the, the, the soundtrack being played entirely on the zither. In this film, the soundtrack's played by none other than Ravi Shankar on the sitar. And so it has this complete kind of, um, you know, it adds this sort of extra sensory element. And there's this, you know, all the way through, you have this one sound kind of driving the the oracular or whatever experience yeah, of, I get that. of the film. Um, so, so it's, you know, just, it, it, it sticks both in your eyes and in your ears um the cast is just wonderful um you you have um you know the, i can't remember who the oh you're right yes so there's this woman who played the grandmother in the film who is just the most remarkable looking um person i mean she she really looks like a million years old and she has like no teeth and she's all like bent over her name the actress's name and forgive my pr uh, pronunciation is uh chunibala devi um and um i mean and she is just utterly um utterly incredible um i love also uh the actress who plays um the the, the big sister apu's big sister uh durga ray um, who maybe she's ooh, maybe she's a relative of the director. Um, she's just so um, she has such soul and such um, an ability to sort of communicate her, um, you know, her feelings and her kind of sadness, and it oh, it's just great. And then and then you have uh, Apu, who's played by uh, Subi Banerjee, uh, Subia Banerjee, and um, 
he's his his face is just like you know he's obviously the the kind of the the main characters for whom you sort of experience the film and when he first appears you just see one of the great i think one of the great child performances um and you you know he has this like iconic visage that just sort of is both innocent it knows more than it should but it is also um it has that sort of childhood resilience uh in it as well it's so um it's so well done and you know the cast to us are strangers so it could be you know it, it is it has that extra layer of realism because we don't know these actors well i don't yeah. know these actors you watch it and so um so yeah so it's it's just a film i think everyone should see it's not an you know it's not an art film it's not complicated it's not philosophically obscure you know this is not a tarkovsky movie it is just a you know it, it, this is the decade isn't it of like um you know neorealism right yeah. i mean yeah neorealism in italy was kind of big at this time yeah well i'm sure we'll talk more about that um so so yeah it, 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 what can i say it's just um it's a good film it, it, it's just a great great movie so yeah. please please watch it so let's let's move on to uh number nines yeah so uh my number nine is a french film um uh, mm-hmm. d- directed by henri georges clouseau and it was released in 1955 and it's les diaboliques les diaboliques okay yeah. that is a great movie uh clouseau who also did the wages of fear of course yes uh, which is in my longer top 50 of the 50s yeah, so if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, you can listen to us talk about our top 50, <laughs> top, top 5,000 movies. <laughs> Every yeah. single film of the 1950s. Yeah, oh, so we should do I, um, we, uh, I, I think we've talked about this film a few times on the podcast, and we have mentioned that this was the film that Alfred Hitchcock nearly got the rights to um, make the film. It was based on a book by... Um, Oh, well, the the right it was it, I think it was Jerome the writing team, isn't it? Yeah, writing team, but uh, uh, Pierre Baudelot and uh, Narsajak, Narsajak, who also wrote Vertigo and Eyes Without a Face, which is also a fantastic movie as well. But wait, Eyes Without a Face, who who directed that? That was Henri Georges Clouseau, wasn't it? Or was that a different guy? Um, I'll look it up. You keep talking. Yeah. So uh, for those who aren't aware of uh, Les Diabolique, it is a movie set in a boarding school. And the headmaster, played by Jean Brochard, is a very cruel and abusive man. He's a man. wanker. He's an absolute wanker. Um, and he is in a relate. He's he's married, but he also has a mistress on the side. And the mistress and, and both the wife, teachers at the school. Yeah, and the mistress and the wife decide to kill him by drowning him in his bathtub, and then they dump the body in the pool of the school a pool that i don't think anyone really uses and it's just dirty and swampy and things like that so but and but then after the murder happens there are people saying they've seen the headmaster they've seen him walking around and then they they try finding the body in the pool it's not there what's going on and without really spoiling anything you just have to watch the film and find out yeah the twist is 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 brilliant um yeah it's, it's a very okay. creepy film it's a very atmospheric oh, yeah. and creepy film and you know suspenseful it too it's incredibly suspenseful and it's not like I mean, a real the bit like where they, the bit where they kill him 
is so um, yeah. tense. You know, it's like, like they... um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Double Indemnity, that scene where they try to kill the husband in that film as well. Fred McMurray and uh, what's her face, Barbara Stanwyck. Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah, no, it's true. It has a, it has a certain. I mean, it's it's very noiry, but I think it goes more. It goes into sort of yeah horror territory more than yeah. In a regular noir would. It borders film noir and horror. And I do feel like horror and noir are two of those genres that kind of mix quite well together. I feel like in this time they do mix quite well. And I do like the idea of the film. It kind of plays around with that idea. Is it haunted? Is there is there a ghost? And, you know, or or maybe it's in someone's mind because the wife of the of the headmaster is a very frail woman. She has a weak heart. So, she, you know, she's very vulnerable. And I think that adds to the film as well. I mean, I could see Hitchcock directing this film, maybe in another universe, in some parallel universe, he probably did direct this film. But um, no, Henri George Clouseau does very well with suspense. And anyone who's seen, who has seen The Wages of Fear will will know that because The Wages of Fear, like the William Friedkin film Sorcerer, which is based, you know, they're both based off the same book. It's incredibly suspenseful. Like, there's many moments where you're just like just shaking because of like how tense the film is. So yeah, uh, yeah, Lay Diabolique. I think it's available on the Criterion Channel. So do it check is. it out. Footnote: uh, Eyes Without a Face was directed by Georges Franju. And um, so ah right, that's that's okay. That guy. So my number nine. I talked about this film as the um it, the decade of the maybe the classic decade of American westerns, um, which is very interesting because. Um, obviously, American westerns have been, been been being made for you know fifty years at this point. Why they should reach their apotheosis during a decade when America is quite divided along political lines? We have the growth of the civil rights movement. You have McCarthyism and so on. I think one of the reasons is that the the West and yeah, there's lots of routine shoot 'em up westerns in this decade, which I think reflects an interest in um, the genre that's born partly out of television and just partly out of just, it, it was popular at the time, but then yeah, there are really, there are other directors who realize that the Western can be a canvas on which to examine the, the political and, and social tensions going on in America and, um, you know, and use some of the newfound kind of interest in psychology and, uh, um, you know, existentialism to, um, uh, to tell a more nuanced story and to use the, the the sweep of the American West's landscape as a backdrop for these. And so there are a number of uh, movies, one of which I'll talk about later, that do this. Um, and um, But it's not just, you know, our old friend John Ford, um, but you've also got um, a number of great directors making Westerns in this decade, most notably... Anthony Mann and Bud Bedeker. And I am on the fence here because I still don't know. Oh, and Howard Hawks, of course. Yeah. Uh, I still don't know which which fucking Western I want to pick. Um, so there's a few candidates. They're not all directed by the same people, of course. Um, and um, and I basically I'm torn between like, do I go with the absolute like classic? Do I go with the one that's really uh pushing the psychological stuff or do i go uh with one that kind of um you know straddles the two um uh genres and i think ultimately you flip a coin I, for it no i think ultimately i just have to um you know to be um to kind of i don't know try and basically take an average uh if, if nothing i mean not an average movie but like sort of try and say what film really represents um you know all of what's got what we've got going on in this 
uh, in this decade in terms of the Westerns outside of one we'll talk yeah. about later. And I think I'm going to pick, um, I, I, I do think I'm going to pick Anthony Mann's The Naked Spur, uh, starring um, the his 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 muse in this period, James Stewart, uh, but also you've got um, Robert Ryan, uh, Robert Ryan in a in a deliciously villainous part, and um, Janet Lee, Ralph Meeker, and Millard Mitchell, uh, and they're all um, you know they're all excellent, um, and um, it is a uh, you know it's comp- it's a it's a very very um, you know, shining example of of what the Western has got going on in this decade. So there are tons of other candidates. I was even torn between other Anthony Mann films in this one. But I think this film, as I say, is representative of what the Western's got going on. It's got a tortured hero. You know, Stuart specialized in playing these haunted, driven characters, yeah. often driven by revenge. Um, and um, in Anthony Mann's Westerns. Uh, and, you know, and actually Stuart, you know, has a number of performances in this decade that really sort of complicate his image of this like you know boy next door um yeah that's true the um the film you know is about a man who's who's lost his property and is trying to get it back um and he he wants to hunt he becomes a bounty hunter in order to do that you know and and bounty hunting and all that goes with it you know it's, it's morally dubious territory and everyone in this film is morally dubious you know you have the good girl who's with the bad man you have the the hero who's actually, you know, the mean, maybe the meanest character in the film. You have these other, um, you know, Millard Mitchell and Ralph Meeker's character. Meeker is, plays as a villainous cavalryman, uh, ex-cavalryman, and me- and Millard Mitchell plays this, you know, I think prospector, essentially, who's kind of led astray by the the, the prospect of this money. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's a, it's it's sad and it's, it's brutal and uh, violent and, you know, the... Um, the film uh like many films of the 50s also questions you know the 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 presence of you know um white people in the west you know so that's not just as cut and dried as uh the indians are these uh you know unseen bad guys that the the native people in this film are are, are seen to be you know have been wronged and even though they're yeah our characters fight them and and prevail um you see that it's not just Indians senselessly and savagely attacking the forces of civilization. This is, you know, the violence has been brought to the West by white people in this film. So that which so that's interesting. I'm not saying it's not got problems when it comes to race issues, but it's um it is more complex than uh, than a lot of earlier movies. And um yeah, it's the landscape, you know, is is astonishingly beautiful. These, um, you know, these great sort of mountain vistas and rushing rivers and so on. And it's it's filmed in gorgeous uh, Technicolor. Um, and um, and yeah, and it's one of, I think, one of the great uh, James Stewart um, uh, performances. So, you know, in, you can take your pick of films from this, you know, decade. I could, I could do a top 10 entirely of Westerns from the 50s. Um, you know, you've got your uh, Shanes, you've got your... Uh, you you know ride lonesome three ten to Yuma, um, Rio all Bravo, these, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, Rio Bravo is another great one. Um, Man of Bad the Day West, Black Rock Anthony well. Mann's, yes, Bad Day, Anthony Mann directed Man of the West, one of his last westerns with uh, um, Gary Cooper, which is also fantastic, and which I was also um, thinking of putting in his. You, you know, there are any number of films, but I think The Naked Spur is is, is a is a great place to start. Um, it stands, I think, the test of time. Uh, it has that other trick that that westerns in this decade do so well which is just kind of simplifying everything down to to the bare essentials and it is a very tight 90 minutes and um you know a uh 
I think one of the most perfect uh, expressions of the genre. Yeah. So what's that? What's it? Your number eight. So uh, my number eight is a Disney film. Oh. And it's the Lady and the Tramp. Oh, you big softy. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. It's uh, I I mean. I mean, I feel like a lot of the sort of old Disney films, like the animation is pretty fantastic. But I think in yeah. this one, it's just really gorgeous. Like on that wide sort of like almost looks like a Technicolor film and it has that kind of Frank Capra feel to it. And it's like a it's like the whole romance. And it's just a really wonderful film. And, you know, as a, I am a massive dog lover and so is my girlfriend Felina. And uh, we we love watching this film together. And um like the first time we watched the film together, in the opening of the film, when they get Lady as a bait as a puppy, they the 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 sort of the owners, like the man and the woman, they put her downstairs, and then the the little dog starts yelping because she wants to be with the family. And my girlfriend, when we watched this for the first time, she was just in tears. And then yeah. she went, we went to go pick up her family dog Emmy and bring her home to watch the film with us because she really started to miss the dog and wanted to watch the we, we watched the film with our with our with our little dog that we share with her family that's very i love that you needed an emotional support dog to watch lady and the tramp um, yeah and when every time uh, there was a dog barking the emmy would just be looking at the screen and sort of tilting her head and everything but no it's a really wonderful romance film between two dogs you know one is like <laughs> you know growing up in like this sort of pristine house that looks like something out of meet me in st louis like the house looks exactly like the bit the house is it, set, is it set in somewhere specific uh i don't know i would say somewhere in the south i would imagine or like somewhere where it's like i don't know maybe new york is it, like, is it a, the, apart from the siamese cat thing is it is it very racist is there, is there, is there, is like, well, there's like i mean the italians is a bit racist towards the italians the guys are like look who's here and they give them pasta and everything hey, yeah i don't know <laughs> and then there's the the irish cop with the red hair and the big nose beer belly so there's that um but no i i just think it's a really really sweet film and yeah i mean of course all the disney films in this time like every disney film has some sort of problematic elements to it and you do have to acknowledge that there's no reason to kind of cut all that stuff out that's just hiding the the racism that's just you just yeah just, you can't go back and change the past so that there's no racism because there's racism now so it's, yeah i mean you've got to they did that recently with um, the French Connection, which is on Disney Plus. They cut out like one little scene because of one little bit of racist, uh, racial, like dialogue. Because he is a racist man. That's his character. Like ugh. anyway, yeah, I know. And Sorry, also, what, were you, what were you saying before? I kind of talked over you a little bit, just slightly. No, no, no. Just I, I think that that you know, Disney films from this. One of the reasons I asked about the race thing is like because you can tell if it's set in the South. They, you know, obviously there's the infamous song of the South, but there's also you know films with. Um, you know, black characters who are either maids or serving people who, you know, crop yeah. up. I, I can't remember Lady of the Trap because I haven't seen it since I was a kid. I do, I mean, I do think, I struggle to think of a more iconic scene in the, in Disney history than the, the pasta one. Um, yeah, with the, with the, I think the music is wonderful. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole racial side of it, I do think the Saima, we are Siamese is still quite a good song. And the cat. It's are... also like it's it's also te like terrible. I mean, like it 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 it's it's truly like like yeah, reprehensible. Like 
like like it should if they remake if they god forbid do a remake of this oh they did um, they did they did right but then you know you should you should like re-examine that but like yeah but what i would say is i don't i don't think you know i wouldn't say if you have the existing film you shouldn't go back and take that out because you know there is a moment there for kids and anyone watching it now to be shown like well this is you know this is why we have these conversations now about racial justice because yeah. for so long it was just normal to make like really dumb like xenophobic racist jokes like in mass entertainment and you know it's i think it's um you know i think there's you know obviously content warnings are good and everything they else, do like if you watch it yeah. on disney plus they do put a disclaimer up that says this film is made this in the film is really fucking racist <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's something like that but uh, anyway, I don't want to take away from your enjoyment of the no, of the uh, Disney movie. But, um, but it's it a wonderful film. I love it. It's one of my favorite Disney movie. films. I just think the animation is gorgeous. I just think the colors are great. The way that it's shot and it's shot in like a big widescreen. Like I don't know why they never shot any other films in that sort of format because it looks great. Um, <laughs> and also like the supporting characters as well. Like the the like the the small little black dog with the beard, and he says like, "Oh, how you doing, lassie?" And uh, the big dog who's like a police... So the dogs do talk in this film. Yeah, the dogs talk in this, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't remember. Okay. I need yeah. to rewatch it. I, I literally haven't seen it since I was like a, a under 10. So We had uh, it on VHS. I know that. But um, anyway. Well, good. Um, well, um, I am, I am, uh, I'm delighted that we have an animation entry on, on this uh, because I feel like it's... I think it's uh, uh, justified. So my number eight... Um, is uh, not an animated film, but it is, um, you know, again, we're in the, we're in the realm of uh, neorealism. And again, you could, um, uh, we've gone to, I, I mean, we're, we, I've chosen an, an Italian film here. Um, and again, there's the, the, the point that you could um, make that there are tons of Italian movies from this decade that would be um, applicable. But for me, it was a pretty easy choice this time around because I just love with a true just a passion this film uh, and that is uh, La Strada by uh, uh, Federico Fellini which um, Ooh, I have not seen that I really want to watch that oh my goodness you owe yourself a yeah. viewing of your film it is so sweet and poignant and sad and and beautiful and um oh my goodness uh, it has one of the great uh, screen performances from uh, uh, Fellini's then wife uh, Giulietta Massina uh, who you know know from people will know from Knights of Kiberia and other great movies, but I mean she is just so. Um, there's the, the her iconic scene is when she's uh, dressed as a clown, and you can see this is truly one of the sad clown performances. She plays this naive, uh, sort of somewhat simple, um, totally huge-hearted young woman who's kind of essentially sold to this yeah. horrid, cruel carnival. Um, uh, guy <laughs> played by um anthony quinn and um quinn's in this yeah um he uh who and he's great um and this sort of tragedy unfolds um over the course of the film and she the breakdown in her sanity essentially is so heartbreaking to watch i i think it is one of i think it is one of the most heart-wrenching films out there um and um it has such a, it sort of unfolds almost like a parable. Um, yeah. Fellini has, 
you know, Fellini's not always in the sort of neorealist trenches. I mean, and there is something quite sort of otherworldly about this. It's about a carnival, a, a traveling troupe of, of um, you know, uh, clowns and tricksters. You know, it's it's not, you know, in this sort of, it's not like Bicycle Thieves and Vittorio De Sica is set in the streets of, yeah, of, yeah. of Rome or whatever. But it, it, I think with these movies though there's always room for a little bit of magic you know I mean I think in Vittorio De Sica's Miracle in the Land there's a lot of magic um yeah but in um in this I think you know you see this the illustration of the hardness of the post-war Italian um of post-war Italian life you know through the eyes of these um of these characters who are doing something quite strange which is you know traveling around and, and entertaining people with you know circus tricks um, where is the movie set is it in it's the... kind of a road movie it kind of travels around um but like not in any major cities i don't think um what sort of period yeah. is it is it like in the time when the yeah, movie no, it's it's set. set in the you know set in the i say set now in, in set the present the of, of when the film came out yeah yeah present day um which is important because uh it is um you know it is supposed to be a portrait of you know post-war it's italian italy um as well so um so yeah it's uh there's not much more to say about it really it is just uh one of these um just perfect films um and i i mean that genuinely i think it is one of my all-time uh favorites it would it, you know it, it is it it's it's one of those ones that just when i think about you know what are candidates for the best film of all time you could certainly add this to the mix and that's not to say that there aren't other good films in this period um, but you know, it's interesting what I was just saying about Fellini. You know, he does also do La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half, and films that are a bit more heady and set in, yeah. in more kind of elitist or whatever and rarefied environments. So you know, he kind of moves around a lot, whereas De Sica is more sort of with the people, <laughs> with the working class. Um, but um, but yeah, I just love this film. Um, and um, and I, if you haven't seen it, which means you and as Holmes, <laughs> um, uh, you you really really need to watch this. Yeah. Um, I have been meaning to watch more Fellini films. The only one I have watched is Eight and a Half, which also has like a kind of magical realism, surrealism aspect to it, which um, yeah. I actually feel is quite nice. Also beautifully shot as well. So my number seven is Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Oh, you know what? This is our first overlap. And my Night of the Hunter is a bit further up the list. So should we just wait until we get to it then? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Great. My number seven is um, 1950s... Um, uh, the from the year 1950, um, uh, Joe Mankiewicz is uh, all about Eve. Didn't make the list, but it is a fantastic film. Oh, so it didn't make your list. Oh, I'm glad. I'm I'm glad then that it's in here because there are lots of films that I uh, couldn't put on my um, top ten list that I would have wanted to. So um, I'm sure we'll cover from yours, like yeah. you know, Twelve Angry Men, for example. Um, so yeah, all about Eve is um, you know, it's it's a cousin of you know Sunset Boulevard and and the Bad and the Beautiful in that it's a film about show business, except this time it's about Broadway, not um, Hollywood, and yeah. it's a film that has a young you know ingenue, you know, sort of cuckoo in the nest uh, taking over, uh, you know, trying to 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 usurp the career and indeed the life in many ways of an aging star. Um, you have Eve played by you know, the titular Eve played by Anne Baxter, who who is the younger um, upstart, and you have Betty Davis in I think her best role playing Margaret. Oh, yeah, for sure, one of her best performances. I think it's 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 um, it's right up there. And narrating all of this is um, the absolutely um, just 
uh, authoritative, um, charming, but but also devastating and and dangerous uh, and uh, poisonous uh, yeah. theatre critic. And manipulative Addison. as well. <laughs> yeah, Addison DeWitt played with relish by George Sanders, and he was very rightly given an Oscar for this movie. Um, Sheer Khan uh, himself. Yes, uh, you you really do have quite the Disney obsession, don't you? Um, I do. Uh, the uh, the um, Sanders is 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 the narrator. Um, the the way the story is told is is in you know is in flashback, um, and you know so you already know that Eve is going to achieve this success, and so it's how do, you know we find out how. But then there's obviously a coda to this film where you see the price of that. It, it is such a good movie about ambition and about, you know, that what's you finding out what's important in life. You know, one of the things that actually happens is that a character who, you know, experiences a fall, that fall allows her to see, you know, the wood for the trees a little bit and and, and regain a sense of um, perspective, which is, yeah. you know, so, so many sort of moral lessons in here. But it's really also just a thrill ride of excellent performances, cracking script, uh, you know, the fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. Yeah, I mean, the dialogue in this movie is amazing. I think Joseph Magwitz had a real hand for, like, dialogue. And just, there's so many great lines in this. I think just the way that George Sanders as Addison DeWitt says, you belong to me. I just think the way that he says that with such relish and control in that scene in particular without, I'm not going to try and spoil what happens in that scene, but the way that he says it and the way that he acts is just, it's very incredible to watch. But at the same time, there's there's a very sad tragedy in it as well and into who he's saying it to that the character that he's talking to absolutely i mean it's um it, it is you know there are so many different kind of narrative strands going on here um that um you know you could you could pick up and and then the sort of eve and um uh margo kind of arcs are so you know it's 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 so much more complex than it sounds and, and more satisfying than it sounds um, you have a great supporting cast, uh, Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter. The guys are a bit useless. It's yeah, really... they are. They are a bit forgettable. The guys, they don't yeah, really. Apart from George Sanders, of course. Yeah, George Sanders. Uh... Yeah, but the two like love interests or of some of the main characters, they are a bit forgettable. You know, yeah. they, they don't linger too on linger too much on the mind of the audience when they're watching it. I think it's like George Sanders. Just fine. Yeah. yeah, you you don't really need. You, they don't need to. Um, yeah. also, 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 Marilyn Monroe is in this movie as well. She is, um, does very well with a small part, and uh, Thelma Ritter as well, who is, um, as always, um, is it just perfect. Um, and um, uh, and there's a you know, delight whenever she shows up. And may, uh, this could have been one of the many films that she was nominated for a, a supporting actress, actress Oscar for. She used to have that. Uh, party on Oscar night where it was like show up and watch me not win uh, yeah it's a it's such a it, it, all about Eve is great fun it's great to rewatch. it's great to discover for the first time it's um it, it comes out in 1950s I feel like it has this it it feels like a it both feels like a 40s movie and a 50s movie it's um, yeah it does yeah it's a it's it's a smart picture for smart grown-up people um and um yeah I I couldn't I couldn't recommend it highly enough so yeah all about yeah. Eve um i yeah because we didn't talk about my number seven so i am jumping straight to well we will be talking about it in a minute but um my number six is a hitchcock film and there were a lot of great uh, hitchcock films that came out this decade north by northwest rear window uh was the man who knew too much that was also 50s wasn't yeah, that it? was in the 50s yeah, 56. yeah 
So I guess you could probably guess which one it's going to be. It's uh, Vertigo from uh, 1958 with James Stewart and Kim Novak. Not the trouble with Harry. Um, Not the trouble with Harry. I haven't. Oh, I still need to see the trouble with Harry. I would love to. I need to watch. Good fun. Not the best. uh, Not the best Hitchcock film of the fifties. So note here that we have another overlap, and so um, (laughs) I'd like to. uh, I'd like to talk about uh, Vertigo a little later on because uh, it is significantly higher on my list. Um, Okay, fair enough. um, But um, yeah, so. so sorry to do this to you two times in a row. Um, <laughs> Fine, it's okay. But, uh, but I just think it's good to talk about them when they're up, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, yeah. Sort of, to, rather to be like, you know, because I don't know, narratively or something, it works. But yeah, fucking... I, I, we we did it on the last episode, so I'm yeah, sure people. Consistent. Who... It's, consistent. it's a consistent rule. Yeah. Uh, so number six for me is the Seventh Seal by uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, that's a gorgeous looking film. It's just, I feel like. I mean, it is Sven Nyqvist who is the cinematographer on that film, I believe, and he just made some glorious imagery in all of Bergman's films, including Fanny and Alexander, which, I mean, that's in colour, but it's still a beautiful film. But yeah, yeah. I I love surreal movies like this that just play around with with fantasy and realism, and I just, I, I think The Seventh Seal is just a, just a gorgeous film, and it has a Brilliant performance by Max von Sydow. Yeah, and um, you've got your, uh, your your Gunnar Bjornstrands and your Bengt Ekerots and uh, uh, who plays the, the the who plays Death. Um, and I love uh, Niels Popper and Bibi Anderson as well. Um, uh, it's it's a it's a lovely cast. Um, I think in many ways the best character in the film is um, uh, is Jöns, played by Gunnar Bjornstrand, um, but. Um, I, it's also just a brilliant kind of like evocation of the Middle Ages, you know, yeah. like what the medieval European mind was, you know, superstitious, obsessed with witchcraft and sin and uh, crusading and stuff, and it, uh, but also philosophical. Um, it, it is uh, very philosophical. It's so um, it's it's such a like intellectually interesting uh, film um, on the one hand, and, and also a, as a kind of wonderful. Um, you know, bucolic sort of almost Shakespearean um, narrative on the other, because you have that classic thing of the, you you know, the high-minded main characters who have access to the other world, and then you have the the sort of the peasant characters, but yet who somehow feel closer to God in some ways than than our than our hero who is so pious and and all the rest of it. You know, there's and then you see the hypocrisy of religion being uh, exposed in the in in the treatment of. Um, the, the, the sort of parade of that brilliant scene where all those weird ass monks show up and they're like you know burning witches and shit like that and it's just like it's so um it there's this kind of like brutality but also a kind of um a, a, a sense of real like scale to the the the, the way that you know this religious uh hysteria is operating in both you know in in society um and it's a road movie too you know this is it's it, tra- it takes you through the you know a little bit like um uh i guess like hidden fortress or something you know it, t- it takes you through different scenarios in different um parts of the country and and of course there's black death going on as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it feels very much like um it, it i i'm convinced that um uh monty python guys the monty python guys watched this before making uh holy grail, holy grail. um so yeah it, it is 
uh, yes, Cedar, the whole everything. I mean, it, it just speaks for itself. It is justifiably very, very famous. Um, and um, if you haven't seen it, if you're not familiar, you will at least be familiar with it. I think a lot of people maybe think they already know what there is to know about the film. Like, no, no, there's there's so much more that will be um, that will be revealed uh, as you as you watch it. And um, it's just a such a satisfying um uh narrative too um so yeah i have uh uh nothing but uh um awe and respect for the film and it's one of the very few ingrid uh ingrid ingmar bergman films i've actually seen i've, I've really not explored his um his oeuvre um yeah i'm sort of you have, for slowly example. making my way through it i would like to get because i have one of his the bfi did one of these they've 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 got like four volume box sets of all of his films like the first one oh. is like all his like early stuff like even ones where he just he's just credited as the screenwriter and then the second volume and the third and fourth and the second volume has the seven seal and all the films that he did in the 50s and then other ones have the Fanny and Alec, Fanny and Alexander, and all the sort of TV movie stuff that he did, because Fanny and Alexander was a TV series and also a film. Yeah. I've only seen Fanny and Alexander, the TV version, but I would like to see the film, just the film version, just to see, just to compare and contrast it. Yeah, um, it's um, I, I have I I really need to to make my way through, but I I love this film, so there's no reason to uh, suspect that I won't uh, enjoy the others as well um, they're all on the criterion channel well most of them are all uh, all the classic ones are on the criterion channel right i need to get watching okay um what's next for you so my number five i hope you don't have this on your list as well because otherwise we're just going to skip through we're just gonna skip all your films <laughs> yeah 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 so uh my number five is uh is a bit of a is, is a noir film from 1953 directed by fritz lang and it's the big heat i do not have it on my list good i can we don't have to skip through mine so yeah uh what a film what a very dark and violent noir film this is and uh you know you got you've got glenn ford you've got gloria graham you've got lee marvin you know great cast of actors all familiar with the uh noir genre you know gloria graham of course was in a in a lonely place and she was also in the bad and the beautiful crossfire as well which had robert ryan uh odds against tomorrow and um yeah this is just a really also a, a film about revenge this is a this is like a revenge movie yeah. in a lot of ways oh big time and um you know it's a murder mystery like the film starts with a suicide and it's like all these kind of corrupt individuals in this no-named american town are sort of you know scrambling to kind of keep their sort of you know organization intact while this sort of good cop played by uh, glenn ford tries to take them down but in doing so puts himself in their sort of crossfire and his wife is killed in a, in a car bomb meant for him. And then he uh, goes on sort of like a revenge mission to try and, you know, take these guys down with the help of Gloria Graham, who's like the mistress of Lee Marvin's character. And because of their sort of, you know, connection and meeting each other, Lee Marvin, there's a very, there's a very memorable, but incredibly violent scene where uh, a coffee pot is used. And um, it's quite, I mean, I mean, you don't see coffee being like thrown in someone's face, but still the sound effect and the, the feeling of it, it's still, oh, it's God. very, so it's really visceral. Yeah. 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 I was just, I was just, I was literally just about to say it's, it's very visceral. And also just like the image of Gloria Graham, you know, dressed in like this, you know, like, you know, we're the women of the mink that she says to one of the characters. I can't remember the line exactly, but you see the bandage on her face and even the makeup as well. When she shows it at the end is quite, ugh. it's quite, it's quite graphic. 
Yeah, the the violence in this movie and in like a lot of Fritz Lang films, and I mean, he talks about it in interviews in later in his career. You know how he wants violence to be something that you um, experience, you know, on this kind of deep level because it's so fearful. It's so um, you know, it is one of the the the, the greatest fears that we have as as a species is of this kind of like of being hurt in this way by other people um and you know rather than just like having people get shot and and fall down uh you know clutching their stomach you know when you see people get hurt in um in fritz lang movies i mean the pain is real that you feel the pain as a as a as a viewer um and there's a great amount of you know emotional yeah. pain this which um is you know comes out of uh the the very the fact that you know glenn ford's performance is so um you know it's 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 so kind of um poignant and 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 genuine you know his his emotiveness you know for quite a sort of not a wooden actor exactly but quite a sort of straight-laced actor he you wouldn't necessarily expect him to have um you know the ability to kind of make a lump appear in your throat as he's talking yeah. about his dead wife um uh who's played that, by that him. scene when he talks to his superiors or someone who's like a da or district attorney he says like what, what, what how is your daughter taking your wife's death she thinks she's on vacation well that's also weird that's like that very kind of mid-century thing of like ah oh, we just won't tell her that her mother's dead and we'll let her be traumatized later on yeah. um yeah no i mean i'm thinking of the scene where he talks to gloria graham about her which is very oh sweet. yeah 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 that scene's great uh you know it 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 has it has moments where it's a little it's it it's got that great kind of simplicity of like there's the syndicate and we've got to take it down and then there's bad cops and the good cops but then it does it does end with quite a sort of like um uh you know well that's all done now and you know i'm just well, a that cop settle that then <laughs> yeah and then at the end of the film the last line of the film is he's like keep the coffee hot and he's like we've just seen two people get scolded by hot coffee and you that you that's what you want to go out on anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. it is very sort of anticlimactic it is just sort of like that newspaper cliche of like this guy's got arrested but we don't see it it is just like everything's good <laughs> yeah the bad uh, guys lose <laughs> nitpicking a little bit but it is a very it's an extremely fine uh you know one of the last great film noirs in some ways um yeah well there, is it a, yeah is it a noir it's it, is it just a really good black and white thriller you know it's it's there's a debate to be had there um either way it's a great film very entertaining um uh, very well great done. cinematography from charles lang i'm just looking at his filmography did he did he did a few little films like this charade and ace in the hole and also uh wait until dark with uh audrey hepburn and now the late great alan arkin which is a absolutely chilling movie oh i still haven't seen that um but it's not oh, you'd 50s. love it you'd love wait until dark it's a great film yeah not from the 50s though not from unlike, the 50s no it was from the 60s or yeah it's from the 60s <laughs> unlike my number five which is also your number seven or eight uh which is night of the hunter yes now we can talk about so, night of the hunter both why of us. don't you go first seeing as you didn't get to talk about it a moment yeah ago. i think this is one of the finest directorial directorial debuts of all time and it's a shame it's also that the only film that Charles the Lawson only film that Charles Lawson made as a director but it's a fantastic movie um it's i think cuz we did talk about this on our podcast on a full episode and in that episode we did talk about it being a modern like a an adult gothic fairy tale and it and yeah. it really does feel like that it's like a film about you know kids essentially running away from the devil dressed in in priest's clothing 
and the priest in this is played by Robert Mitchum and this is one of his you know best performances and he's got hate and love written on his knuckles and that is also referenced a little bit in uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing which I think yes, it, it is yeah, the... and also brilliantly in the Simpsons where it's L-U-V and hat yeah <laughs> one of the characters has on this oh yeah, yeah. it's a Sideshow Bob's character yeah um but yeah it's a it's a it's a chilling film the cinematography is amazing like there's so many great who did it? was it Tolland who who did the cinematography on I this? I will double check that it was Stanley Cortez oh Cortez of course yeah 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 who worked no, on uh Shot Corridor and a few other films yeah well the, the Night of the Hunter was it was it was Charles Lawton who, you know, at this point is a beloved um, actor, you know, character actor who, um, you know, he was a big star in the 30s and, you know, had, you know Mutiny on the Bounty and so on, uh, uh, Private Lives of Henry VIII. Um, Spartacus. You know, Oscars. Hmm? Spartacus, he was also in that, but years later. Well, yeah, but this is later in his career. So, you know, yeah. w- when he's older, which he is about the 50s, you know, he is playing in films like Witness for the Prosecution and then obviously later in Spartacus, where he's kind of this corpulent, big kind of character who maybe isn't the main character, but is, is sort of a central part of the of the film. And he was also very well known as a, as a you know, reader. He toured, um, he actually had a very successful tour where he read from the Bible, which is an interesting thing. Interesting to remember about America in the 50s. It's still a very religious place. Um, well, this movie's pretty religious as well, in in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, but it's, it 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 deals with it. It's not a religious film. It's uh, it's not like uh, uh, or by uh, what's his name, Paul uh, No, this is this is a film that sort of actually takes quite a lot of issue with uh, certain kinds of religion. Um, the um, when he set out to make a movie, you know, he was he'd seen the novel by Davis Grubb, you know, the Southern Gothic, you know, weird book. Um, and um and decided like oh, okay i'm gonna make a movie out of this and it's like yeah you, you're gonna make a movie about a priest who kills widows like uh okay and it's gonna be kind of um black and white and strange and and expressionist um and he it, and, and you so you, you're already like okay i'm worried that not a lot, I'm, I, I love the sound of this but i'm worried a lot of people aren't gonna enjoy this and yeah you know he took uh you know the woman uh who kind of steals the last third of the film Lillian Gish who was also a famous star from the 1910s and 20s you know, one of the great silent movie actresses you know he took her out for dinner and said I want to make a film like we used to make in the old days in the, you know in the silent people era to make sit people... up in the cinema yes that's what he said and I mean I did the first time I watched this but I think a lot of other people didn't I think it was too weird for people and I think it was it was not it was sort of panned when it came out and it and it's such a it's such a shame because um, it would have been nice to see him make more films. Like he didn't, okay, he he only had another six or seven years to live at this point, but he could have made another movie in that time. And um, it is, uh, it's one of the great, like what could have been kind of questions uh, in uh, in Hollywood history. But um, I also love the music in this. Um, yeah, the music's really wonderful. There is that scene in the boat when the kids get away from Robert Mitchum and the little girl starts singing some folk folk song but given the girl's age that's not her singing voice that's just yeah, someone she sounds like fucking nico she just wants there was a fly yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, exactly it was done it was done 
Yeah. Well, yeah, and of course it was done, but it's just really quite funny. It's that just like, well, she's that little girl's got a great singing voice. Nah, that was that was a bit of post-production. I think from what I gather on like behind the scenes, what I've gathered about my research into the sort of behind the scenes history, I think he had a lot Charles Lawton had a lot more fun directing the boy actor than he did directing the girl actor. I think what they did with the girl actor is they just kind of film the rehearsals, you know, get her to a point where like her attention was like at, at the highest point and then just use the footage from well, she's there. Very, she's very, very young. In yeah, this film. of course. Um, you know, I, I, it's, yeah, it, it was one, I think the story is, yeah, that he had, he was not, <laughs> you know, never worked with children's or uh, children or animals. Um, but um, yeah, it's her only. It's her only movie. Um, Sally Jane Bruce, uh, Billy Chapin, who played um, uh, John uh, Harper, the the sort of the core. You know, in many ways, the sort of moral core of the film. He was a yeah. um, uh, child actor who was in more uh, in a few more movies, including the great uh, Violent Saturday with Victor Mature, which is a was a terrific film. Mm. Um, but yeah, this. Um, this is a, I think the maybe one of the most unusual um, and singular Hollywood movies, and it's uh, it's been you know reappraised, and I'm sure Charles Lawton is sitting on his cloud, being very glad that that, that the film has finally sort of achieved its uh, um, it, the status it deserves as, as one of the great kind of art movies of the of of Hollywood. But it feels like that this it was a step too far for a lot of people yeah. uh, when it first uh, arrived. Um, but yeah, it's such a treat to watch now. Um, so um, it feels so steeped in 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 like yeah, a little a little bit of Mark Twain here, a little bit of Faulkner here. Yeah, uh, you know, very it's very much kind of an Americana, uh, a piece of Americana, but also something that feels like it has somewhere in its deep deep soul a kind of European fairy tale thing, as you say, like a sort yeah. of German thing. So definitely. Uh, if again, I say this again and again, but there are some there are some doozies on this list, and this film is one that if you haven't seen it, you will be, um, you will have a wonderful time. Um, yeah, and, um, yeah, and 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 it will. It, I I challenge you to find a similar American movie. That's for sure. It's very. It is a very singular film. Yeah, I agree. So uh, number four. What's your number four? So my number four is a is one of the films about. Um, Hollywood that was made in this time that you mentioned before, and that is Sunset Boulevard, directed by Billy Wilder. I am so glad you put this on because I had to, I had to make the difficult decision not to have this on my list. And um, yeah, so go ahead. And Billy Wilder is 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 one of. I mean, he's just so. And I actually don't have any Billy Wilder on this list, which is insane. Um, yeah. So yeah, take it away. Yeah, I just you know I feel like I, I was interested in watching this film for a very long time because i remember i was i was home when we were when i was a kid there was like on channel four i I believe it was like like the hundred greatest films of all time and this and then the section oh, yeah they, i used to love those the countdowns yeah. on channel four yeah i saw that in that i didn't watch all of it it was because it was like late and i had to go to bed or something and but I, when i watched it it was like in the section that i saw there was like they were talking about jean de florette and then blue velvet and then they talked about sunset boulevard and the way that they were describing sunset boulevard i was like wow this sounds like a really interesting film that i really want to watch someday and i have and i've seen it a few times and i think the movie is 
brilliant. And I love the fact that the movie starts with your protagonist, who's dead, played by William Holden, who's like a screenwriter. Yes. And then he's narrating the whole story from Beyond the Grave about how he ended up dead in some pool. And I do think the shot of him like floating in the pool is a very creepy and evocative shot. I think that's like, I don't know, it's something out of a horror film almost. And I, I just, it's a very striking image of him just floating after being shot and stuff. You know, we see him as this, you know, this struggling writer. He's, you know, he owes money to people. And then he ends up in this like really creepy gothic house that seems stuck in time. It almost feels like great expectations in Hollywood kind of. Yeah, kind of she's house. a real sort of Miss Havisham character. Yeah. Yeah. And he meets Gloria Swanson's Norma Desmond, who is this, you know, you know, back in the day, she was like this big silent movie star. And, you know, she says, I am big. It's the pictures that were small. And she has they a... Got small. They got small, sorry. Um, and she has a butler played by Eric von Stroheim, Max, who, of course, was also a director of many movies of the silent era, one of which was a movie called Greed, which came out in 1924. Which yeah, I would like famously to watch. long and uh, with a tortured production history. Yeah. So and then, and she has this script that she wants to write and you know to be like her big comeback film and he's tasked with doing it and it becomes like this very weird movie where he sort of feels tethered to her and she loves him and wants him to stay and it's like it's a it's it's a yeah, film he like, becomes a, a sort of gigolo essentially yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's also, he's, you know, he also has a bit of a relationship with a movie called, uh, with a character called um, Betty Schaefer, a, a, a woman he has a relationship with, and they start writing a screenplay on the side, and she's played by Nancy Olsen. And, yeah, it's a very tragic film. It has a, it's a very interesting film about ageism in Hollywood, about a point where yeah. you, you, you get to a certain age, and people kind of forget about you, like, and then there's the next best thing, and it's like, you, you know, you, I mean, there was a lot of actors in this period where who just kind of got to a certain point and there was someone well, who was... just silent, silent actors, you know, we talk yeah, about... Yeah, a lot of silent actors really struggled to, to find work when sound was introduced into films and, you know, that was, you know, incredibly sad and tragic. And, um, yeah, it, it, it does paint a very sort of sort of dark picture of Hollywood a little bit, especially when Norma goes back to the studio and then you have a little... Uh, cameo from Cecil B. DeMille and also you have we Hedda also Hopper. have a cameo in this film from Buster Keaton and Buster yeah, Keaton and Hedda Hopper. another silent movie star who'd been forgotten and fallen on hard times yeah exactly um, um, so it's like there's 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 so much interesting like life imitating art in this because the film at one point she's watching she screens a film in the house that was that stars Norma Desmond uh, but yeah. also Gloria Swanson it is a film from the 20s with and it was directed by Eric von Stroheim, but it was never, I think it was never released or something, or there's some, or it was a flop. And so he's there, the director of this film, playing a character in the film, watching the film with the, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Still like meta thing. And yeah. it is, it's very, um, it's, it's, it's very cool that, and I think it adds richness to the film that there is this real life, you know, that, that this isn't just, um, that they did get a big star and a famously kind of decadent star from the era to play uh, yeah. Norma Desmond, that you did get Eric von Stroheim, who who was, you know, a director who had kind of been broken by the Hollywood system to mm. uh, to be, um, you know, to be her her um, her butler guy, you know. So it's it's so um, it's so smart, you know, all those decisions and um, and it's so fucking dark 
and it's like the trap that he, that sort of like honey sticky sappy trap that Holden who is a slimy character it has to be said in this film you yeah. know gets caught in is um is really um it, it's it it really feels very enveloping and, and claustrophobic and yeah it's 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 sort of again noir gothic horror um and um well yes yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's wonderful well it's also kind of ironic as well because Gloria Swanson she was it did kind of reinvigorate her career and I think she did win an Oscar for this movie but did she yeah I think so I think she might have won an Oscar or she was nominated. was nominated yeah no oh no she didn't win she was nominated uh, she was nominated and so was eric von stroheim and nancy olsen and william holden uh billy wilder and charles bracken and dm marshman jr they won an they won a um uh best story and screenplay oscar but um no there was like and uh but no I think it did that much for her career because i'm looking at it it's still mostly silent films i mean she was in airport 75 yeah, but no but like she but i, I was listening to the uh, projection booth podcast episode about this about this film and she were after the movie came out there was a she met an, an actor called Richard Stapley who was in a who was um who had a writing partner and she wanted to do a musical based off Sunset Boulevard and hmm. there is a documentary about it and also because she was quite infatuated with with this actor unaware of the fact that he was gay and in a relationship with somebody else. So it becomes oh my God, like, so it's like a, this is, this is again, life imitating art. Yeah. So I, 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 I really want to watch that documentary. It just sounds really interesting, Thanks. but yeah, I just found that just, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a shame her career didn't get reinvigorated as much, but I mean, still what a performance in this movie and also what an ending, like such a great final shot at, at the end. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, so my number four is, Tokyo Story um, by um, Yasujiro. Uh, oh dear, I have to pronounce, get his name correct. Um, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, yeah. 1953 again. Um, so yeah, didn't could have picked a Kurosawa film. Uh, didn't. I think Tokyo Story is the best um, Japanese film of the 50s. I mean, there are all there are so many to pick from, Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and so on. But um, I just think this is again talk about neorealism you know this is um such a wonderful uh portrait of age uh of uh of family of um you know changing times um of japan um uh, it is um it's heartbreaking it's poignant it's full of like this idea of sort of memory and 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 you know the fear of getting older and the young people kind of ignoring you and it's uh it's about an older couple who go to tokyo to visit their children and stay with them you know and it, it live with them even and the children are you know they're not really the most welcoming bunch and they're very obsessed with work and success and class and so on and so there is it there's this alienation that the the characters feel that kind of takes that that pervades the the movie um and um yeah, I mean, the, the, it's it's just stunning. The performances are really fantastic. Um, it's um, there's there's the the memory obviously of of World War Two, obviously haunts this film as well. Um, and um, yeah, again, like um, Pata Pachali, there's not the greatest amount that I'd want to say at this point about it beyond you know encouraging people to watch it and and sort of vouching for its quality because i think that you know to go into detail about the plot is to give too much away to 
um, to try to sort of explain without people having seen what makes this film so uh, stay with you in such a way is, is, is difficult because there's no great like iconic moment. There's no baby carriage on the, you know, Potemkin, you know, Battleship Potemkin on the Odessa steps. You know, there's no like, you know, seventh seal reveal of death. You know, it is a film about people moving through situations and the realistic situations. And it's so it's... Um, little things a scene that stays with me for example is a scene in a hotel where the old couple try and get out of town and they're staying in a hotel and there are all these young people having a party all night so they can't sleep well why is that interesting well it's because the film shows in the reactions to them you know the themes that are at the heart of this about age and, and not being able to keep up with modernity and 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 the sort of alienation feeling and um and you know so through visual storytelling and great performances you get sublime beauty out of the mundane um but i um yeah it, i mean i think that's really kind of partly of the essence of uh of neorealism in the 50s um so if that sounds like your bag you should check out this movie um but uh if you want like a really good adventure yarn you should probably stick to kurosawa um <laughs> but uh but no tokyo story is is again along with la strada um you know you've got to kind of have that in the conversation when you talk about um, you know, the best films of all time, I think. So it's, uh, um, yeah, iconic, iconic piece of work. What's at your number, what, three now? Three, yeah. My number three is a movie directed by uh, Alexander McKendrick, who, of course, directed quite a few films for Ealing Studios, like The, the Lady Killers, The Man in the White Suit, and uh, Whiskey Galore. Um, only directed 10 films and had a much more lucrative career as a teacher. And I actually have one of his books. It's called, yeah, it's it's a movie. It's, it's basically a book about filmmaking. And the film that's at my number three that he directed is the brilliant film, Sweet Smell of Success with oh, yeah. Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. And I know, I mean, we've mentioned before, like a few films where like All About Eve that has just great dialogue. I mean, this is a film that's just filled to the brim with just brilliant lines, like you're dead son, get yourself buried. And um, I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. And yeah, there's, uh, there's so many bitchy one-liners. I love it. Maybe I, maybe I left my sense of humor in my other suit and the cats in the bag and the bags in the river. And I mean, Hitchcock said, you know, to make a great film, you need a great script, a great script and a great script. And this movie just has a brilliant script. And he even worked with Ernest Lehman, who wrote it on North by Northwest. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that connection. Yeah. This is a, this is a very cool film. Um, good. Um, you got your, your, your fantastic performances from, um, uh, Bert Lancaster and Tony Curtis. It feels like a cousin of All About Eve in some ways, even though it's um, you know concerning itself with all kinds of things, both show business and politics. And you have this um, journalism in this one. Yeah, isn't it? You know, isn't it? He's he based on Walter Winchell. Um, and, I, uh, I think so. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But um, um, yeah, it just kind of. Sh it, it's a film that just dwells in the world of you know being morally corrupt and you know like like just morally bank bankrupt and everything like that and i really feel like tony curtis and burt lancaster they do play against type in this film because i've never seen burt lancaster play such a like overtly villainous character even though i think he was a total prick in real life oh really um, i didn't know that yeah. um and um yeah it, it's and curtis is great as this kind of like slimy sort of 
kind of parasite and be able to I'll do anything to get well. on top yeah yeah no it's i mean i think it is a, it is very you could pair it really well with all about eve i think um this film i think you uh you know the, the the fact that they're both set in new york you know that this um you know place of both great seediness and great wealth and influence uh it has um it, it's such a good backdrop for um uh, for this this very very cool film that's also got some like great jazz in it and stuff great yeah. scenes of jazz clubs and great musicians and um you know just uh, it's it it it's such a it's such a great world to be in even though it feels like such a, also quite an unpleasant world at the same time um yeah you don't really want to hang out with any of the characters they all seem like pricks just... no, but i wouldn't i wouldn't mind being in the same bar yeah they, yeah exactly they go to some fun places yeah um, i yeah i uh, the the bit of the plot that I'm not as convinced by is the whole thing with um, Burt Lancaster's sister, and that that all feels a little bit like too. Yeah, there's like because she's Scarfacey. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little bit Scarfacey, and then the whole like she's forced to go on a date with his rival is is a little bit. It's it reminded when I watched it, it did remind me a little bit of an episode of Mad Men in season five where Joan is forced to go on a date with a guy to get him as like in like to sign with the with the agency it reminded me a little bit about that well i think Mad Men. i think this is a real this is one of those films that along with the apartment by billy wilder yeah. um, that really in, helped inspire Mad Men. yeah it um, feels like a real precursor I mean, to that show i think i think there are parts of that the thing with the sister that are, that really that are done really well and i think there are other bits where it's a little bit sort of too on the nose or something i i don't know that i need to watch it again but um but no you're right i mean this is this is a this is such a such a fantastic film um yeah um also <laughs> just worth noting the cinematographer on the film was james wong how he was nominated 10 times for best cinematography and he won twice and he was very innovative with his use of deep focus cinematography which gives a lot of delicacy to to the film and you know in the way that you use the camera and he was nicknamed low key how due to his use of deep shadows through dramatic lighting and on the 1927 film the rough riders he created the early version of the camera dolly but back then it was called the crab dolly interesting yeah i i, I have a i have a book about him here which is about his career it's this book James Wong Howe, the camera eye, and it's a, it's a book of a, an interview uh, with him, uh, uh, written by uh, Alain Silver. And from what I gather with, from reading up about his story, I'm pretty sure he was a guy that definitely had to work hard to get where he was in a primarily white indus industry. Yeah, because he was Asian American, right? Um, yeah. And he, yeah, so he would have suffered a lot of uh, color prejudice. And now he, I mean, he is one of the most, like up there with Deakins is one of the most kind of like prolific and 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 consistently excellent uh, cinematographers. Uh, so, you know, good, uh, very um, right to foreground him. My number three um, is a Soviet film uh, and a very remarkable one. Uh, and it's called The Cranes Are Flying by uh, Mikhail Kalat Kalatozov. Kalatozov? um a 1957 uh film set during the war um with um the second the world war who, yeah the woman who's torn between the love of two men and she chooses the wrong one um and it is a film that you know is a re revealing of the post-stalin era as much as anything else as much as also a a, a, a 
like so many of the great Soviet films of, of these years, you know, looking back to the Second World War and, and kind of processing all that happened. But, you know, this film reveals some of the um, the corruption that went on by um, people who were, you know, politically appointed, uh, shall we say, both in the army and civilian life. Uh, you know, it revealed that in a way that maybe a film made during Stalin's lifetime couldn't have done. You know, this is a this is made in Khrushchev's Russia and, and one where or in Khrushchev's Soviet Union, one where the there was more of an acknowledgement that Stalin had, um, you know, let's be honest, been a monster. And so, um, bit of a prick. Very interesting film to watch from that with that regard. But the main thing is the the, the camera moves. I've seen like, like a clip where it's like a one shot that goes from like a like a bus, like it focuses on the woman and then it goes out the window or something, and then it like it, it's it's yeah, a long it's like, tracking it's like it shot. It doesn't follow the laws of physics. Like the camera is like a is attached to a bird or something. It just flies wherever it feels. Like. It feels like it doesn't need to worry about gravity or anything. And it's a it's a stirring cinematic experience to watch this sweeping um series of camera movements um you know in 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 certain instances and then there are these brilliant kind of angular compositions and others that that really show a kind of uh uh a, a gift for just composing a shot uh, to 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 sort of um show either um you know the pain of the character or you know perhaps reveal some kind of inner beauty but it there's um there's so much uh um longing in this movie there's so much kind of regret um the 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 actors are all really really good um the uh the the, the it's, it's a you know it's a, an odyssey of a film you know it, it it has um you know it begins before the war and then it takes you into the the darkness and just and then you come out at the other side um and the cranes are flying again you know that's the the birds in the sky you know it's the sort of the metaphor for the movie but um there's so much in between around, you know, love and loss and 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 tragedy. Um, and the 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 final scene, I I was just bowled over by you know this this uh, this woman who thinks who know who really sort of knows on some level that her love is dead in the in the at the front, but goes to the station anyway to to see the soldiers come back. You know, is um it's one of the most kind of incredible portraits of the end of the war or just that I've ever seen put on screen. Um, uh, so, you know, on a technical level, on, on, a, on a narrative level, on a performance level, this film is unimpeachable. I cannot say enough good things about it. And I think it's not as well known as perhaps it should be. Although I think a lot of people who've seen it are like, oh, this is great. And, you know, the, I think it, it makes it into a lot of lists and it's very widely available. It's on the Criterion channel and so on. I'm still not sure it's right up there as one of the best known, even Soviet films. And it, and it really should be. Um, so I, I, uh, I, I heartily recommend it to everyone listening um, because um, I think, yeah, you will, you will not, uh, <laughs> this, this film will stay with you. Uh, you will not be the same after watching this. Yeah. I started watching a, um, a Russian film well, made in the Soviet Union, which also came out in 1959, called uh, Ballad of a Soldier, Grigory uh, Chukre's film. Oh, which I haven't seen. That's supposed to be very good. Yeah. yeah, that's on the Criterion channel. I've started watching it. That's a very um, beautifully, also quite tragic film as well. Yeah, I think these two are kind of cousins of each other. These yeah. two. But it's interesting, like in 1959, there was three 
war films that came out that had that very anti anti-war feeling about it one of them was this the other one was a japanese film called Fly fires of the plane i think it's called yeah and the other one was die brucke the bridge the german except film. this came out in 1957 i should just say oh, the, oh yeah but i was just i was just interesting like it was like i, I mean just i felt yeah, like but, was, but you're, in this era there are a lot yeah. of films that are not just yeah gung-ho let's kill the nazis it's um yeah this you, you're right uh there's also the fabulous film, The Ascent. Um, the Russian film as well, made, yeah. It was made by that. What was her name? Um, she was, I think, a Ukrainian director. Um, she only made two films or three films, wasn't it? Oh, it came out in 1977. Larisa Shapitko. Um, but yeah, that's another film that... Oh, that's a Very fantastic. snowy film from what I... Very, what I, very snowy. Yeah, if it would... I, I can't remember if it was in our top 10 snow films, but it should have it been. It might have been brought up, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, what's your number, number two? So my number two is a film also about Hollywood, which you neglected to bring up uh, at the beginning of the episode, and that is... I'm singing in the oh, rain, just oh, singing oh, in the goodness. rain. <laughs> what yeah. a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. <laughs> See, I love how... Um, again, with this list, these parallel lists, you've got your, uh, you've got that wonderful difference between us, where you really just do lean into like the the, the ice cream and, yeah. and the sweetness and the Hollywood and the Technicolor, and I love that about you. Um, and I think that uh, you know having both Lady and the Tramp and Singing in the Rain in your top ten tells you everything you need to know about <laughs> the positivity with which you you surround yourself movie wise. Yeah. Um, I mean, the these days you got to say, I'll just say my top two films are fucking bleak. Spoiler alert there. Yeah. Anyway, Singing in the Rain with Stanley Donnan, uh, Gene it's, Kelly. I mean, yeah. God, it's not to like. It's a, it's a, it's a funny, sweet film. Make them laugh. Yeah. Make them laugh. Donald O'Connor, uh, Donald O'Connor, Donald O'Connor, who's just great as Cosmo Brown. And you got Debbie Reynolds, who is just absolutely amazing in this and uh gene hagen as lena lamont with that sort of like what's the big idea with that great well, some of the comedy in this is hilarious oh that's yeah. great the whole the, the 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 moment the scene with the microphone where they're trying to get her to speak into the microphone <laughs> i mean having worked as a sound guy on films it's like it is like that you i mean i mean then the, in that time you really had to be in a, in a specific place to, to for the microphone to pick you up because the microphone wasn't moving. It's just in like one particular place. You didn't have like a boom operator or anything like that. So it, it's so funny. Like, and also the radio mics and finding places. It's like, oh, I can't make love to a bush. Like that. And then the whole... You know that the and then the payoff is you know oh well, this cable is dangerous and she's pulled and then it's just so funny and um, I went to go see uh, earlier this year I went to go see Damien Chazelle's movie Babylon, right. which is an interesting film. But the one thing I will say about Babylon, which I'm a little bit like, it it kind of rips off Singing in the Rain and it does rip off this scene. And does the same exact scene of them trying to do a scene with sound and all the problems that kind of go with it, just with a little bit more swearing and no swishy swishy camera and everything like that. And also the final scene of the film before this like little montage thing of cinema 
and all the jazzy music that plays under it is the scene where the main character of the film goes to a cinema. He comes back to Hollywood and he goes to a cinema and watches Singing in the Rain. And there's a lot of moments where they actually reference or rip off. I'm, I'm not really quite sure, but it, 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 it reminds me. It sounds like an annoying movie. Let's talk about Singing in the Rain, which is not yeah, annoying. I know, but it was just like, but it made me like, I want to go home and watch Singing in the Rain because I feel like, I mean, as much as I liked Babylon, Singing in the Rain is a much better movie. And yeah, you can't really, it just shows you, you can't like rip off and copy Singing in the Rain. It's just, it's just brilliant for what it is. And it's like, interesting that it's never been remade. It's never been remade. No, but I feel like it's a nice little companion piece to Sunset Boulevard as well. But the whole thing about yeah. silent movie actors struggling to kind of come into the era of sound and figuring that out. But also at the same time, it's got great choreography. You know, Gene Kelly, Stanley Donnan is amazing. And the the songs are great. Also, like "Good Morning, Good Morning," like that whole thing. Yeah, they... and those, it was one of those Hollywood musicals that came out that really just sort of made room for a bunch of existing songs. Like there were not that yeah. many songs that were written for this film. So there's a delightfulness in just knowing that they were like, "Ah, oh, this song will work in this." Like it's called "Singing in the Rain." Singing in the Rain has got nothing to do with the plot of this film. The bit yeah. where he actually does sing in the rain also has nothing to do with the plot. It's just he's in the rain. He's happy. And he sings in it, and it's glorious. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, it's wholesome. Also, uh, yeah, it is. It's very wholesome. Um, Citrice is in this film, isn't she? Yeah, Citrice is in this film. Yeah, she's good too. Um, and uh, well, I just the dance, the dancing is um, is glorious. I'm really glad we have a musical on this list because the '50s were um, a really glorious era for Hollywood musicals, and um, yeah, you know, and then and that continued right into the '60s with sunset boulevard and so on but like yeah um the musical you know along with the western along with film noir you know yeah it teetered out those kind of crime pictures they are kind of the the essential kind of american genres because every other genre kind of has its origins in europe or you know at least its parallels but these feel like they're somewhat unique to hollywood at least in in this era um and um yeah, it's just, uh, it's so, it, it, maybe it's the ultimate kind of Hollywood movie of the 50s. Uh, this it's, it's about Hollywood, but it's not existential. It's just having fun with being yeah. nostalgic. Um, where it's like Sunset Boulevard, it's all about <laughs> existential. The dark side of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they yeah. are a nice companion piece to one another. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's lovely. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you picked it. Yeah. Um, so should we go back to the dark side? Yeah, let's go back to the dark side. What's your number two? So my number two. This is where my my heart and my head were in were in uh, battle with one another, and I decided to to admit that my favorite film of the fifties is not necessarily the best film of the fifties. Um, so instead, I put my favorite film at number two, and that is The Searchers uh, by John Ford, which we've talked about. Ding! Many, 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 many times yes. on this uh, uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, can I just say, overlap again, spoiler alert, that's my number one. All right. Do you have... So Singing in the Rain was your number two, right? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about our number ones. Um, yeah. Searches is your number one. It was nearly my number one. It, of course. What was your number one? Well, my number one is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah, yeah. We forgot to talk about Vertigo. <laughs> which I think is just one of the greatest movies I've ever made. I mean, it, yeah. it's the greatest Hitchcock film. It is a... Um, one of the is, best psychological horror movies of all time. But it, it's, it's just masterful. I mean, it, it, everything about it just reeks of quality. Um, yeah. The direction, the 
the cinematography, the performances, the blah blah the music. blah. Even the location, even the use of San Francisco is clever. Um, I think San Francisco is one of the best cities to film in. I really think they. I think any any production that has used San Francisco as like their main sort of base of like shooting a film. I think they utilize the city very well. I just think it's such a like characteristically strong city, and I think it lends so well to to the camera. And and yeah, I think Hitchcock's so many movies it. you could just pick out of thin air about filmed in San Francisco. You know, you've got your Point Blank, you've got your uh, Bullet. Your bullet. Yeah. So um, no, that's a good point. But yeah, no, um, Vertigo from just as a like story, it's so you know coming back to Bolu and Narshijak or whatever their names are. Um, yeah, this is a very, very weird and unusual film that you have no idea where it's going to go when you first watch it. And it, again, like Anthony Mann with James Stewart, it plays on this side of Stewart's performance and character as an actor that, you know, can become kind of obsessive and twisted and kind of demented. Yeah, because he's not um, really heroic in this film. I mean, because the first of like Hitchcock's films that I remember watching with you was The Man Who Knew Too Much and then this. And in The Man Who Knew Too Much, he is quite a heroic person because he's, you know, trying to save his son. But in this one, it's very different. Right, yeah. Um, In this, exactly. And, um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that you know the, the film opens with this kind of breathless chase sequence that ends with this moment where he you know he has a moment of serious trauma and um and then that sort of sets that that that's where his life changes you know and he there's no going back and but he doesn't fully realize you know until it's too late that he is as messed up as he is and he is being manipulated you know in that um you know and then it becomes um then it really sort of becomes this um th- this journey into the soul of 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 his character and this you know when when he's when he's first been duped you know the second half of the film is like how do we recover and it's like well he he it turns out he can't because he he has a chance encounter with Kim Novak again <laughs> and he's back back to the dark side and the end of the film ends very you know definitively this is the ending but yet for him there is no ending and that's why i think actually this is a very good film to talk about alongside the searchers because the searchers also solves the problem yeah of the film which is a woman a, a girl has been kidnapped by the native americans and now she is returned yes and um but the main character just as james stewart in this film is left you know with no answers really yeah, John he's Wayne just locked in like a psychological circle for the rest of his right. life. The the John Wayne and the Searchers is left to wander forever between the winds, um, yeah. and um, you know the the. I'm glad that these two films have kind of ended up at the top of our list uh, because um, yeah, there 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 are parallels, and I think one of the parallels is you're talking about two classic directors who at this point are quite old. Um, you know, they've both been making films for decades. Yeah, and they're both trained in the silent era, and yet in 1956 with the Searchers and in 1958 with Vertigo, they both managed to make career best movies. Yes, um, true. I don't think there's a better John Ford film than the Searchers, and I don't think there's a better Hitchcock film than Vertigo. I mean, you could you could get into arguments about that. Um, yeah, I mean, when did North by Northwest come out? Did that come out before this? 59. It was amazing to think. You've got 58, Vertigo, 59, North by Northwest, 1960, Psycho. And then that's, that's a pretty fucking much. hell of a sequence. 
Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, when you talk, I mean, Hitchcock and Kurosawa, they both had pretty good runs. They had like just great film after great film. Yeah, yeah, for certain periods, but like certain, in that yeah, little fifties yeah. period that Hitchcock has, um, it is, um, yeah, it's it's just pretty um, amazing. It's, it's it's a wow. Uh, you know, Ford on the other hand, it's I'm not sure. Like I think before the surges, he made Mister Roberts, which is not a great film, and then he made. Um, yeah, I watched I that when he... we were in the states. I it's a, it's a fun little film, but it's I don't know if it's one of his most memorable films. But I mean, for yeah. what it is, it's pretty fun. But it's not a film of his that. Really yeah, but I mean, it's not a great. But you know, it's, the it doesn't kind of... linger too much on you, but it is fun to watch. Um, the um, the I think the searchers kind of is a bit of an island. I mean, it 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 is followed up, but he does make other good films after it, and yeah, including the man who shot Liberty Valance, but. Yeah, I mean, again, talking about the Western as like a a place to examine the psychology of the um, of the American man. I mean, The Searchers is a, is a sort of sine qua non of that. You know, yeah. it's just absolutely um, raw and 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 pure in its uh, in its depiction of this kind of twisted, t- toxically masculine, racist man. Um, and it's it's not a film that is it's not without its problems when it comes to race stuff, but the depiction of native people is still quite yeah uh, offensive. And it's idea. You do that, have a white, you have a white German actor playing an Indian in that film as right, well. Right. Yeah, of course there's that problem too. And then you have this kind of basic idea that, you know, yeah, the, pro- the way to progress is for white people to quote unquote civilize the West. But there are so many complications in all of that. You know, there is so the the way the white people are seen to be, you know, it's not just Ethan Edwards, you know, there are other characters who say stuff that we are designed to um understand as kind of reprehensibly racist in this film. Um and um and yeah, it's just I I what I, I love is how rewarding it is as a film to kind of watch and to to pull apart and to examine, you know, there there is yeah. um there's so um, so many strands to take hold of. And then it's just a great, you can see just what a solid production it was. Like it was filmed in Monument Valley in color. Um, you had your stock company with people like Ward Bond and so on. You know, th- you have this sense of a crew, of a group being able to go back to a location they know well. It stayed in Goulding's Lodge where we had breakfast. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, you know, they went out and filmed in the valley that they had, they had gotten to know um, you know, better than anyone, uh, apart from the Navajo, who all saddled up and played Comanches or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, it's um, it has that sense of just like real professional, like a unit that knows its job and knows what it's doing. Yeah. And I think that's that comes across too in Vertigo, that Hitchcock just feels so at ease in that director's chair in that film, um, doing, you know, making like bold decisions in the same way that Ford is is making bold decisions, though he never... You know, gave a straight answer about why he made some of the decisions he did with the searchers. It's um, you can see that that's being done. Yeah, but that he is making directorial choices that are even for him, you know, unusually uh, brilliant. Uh, you know, that they that that are, that are taking the film in a different direction to where it might have gone, um, had he made it as a younger man. Yeah, I mean, his positioning of the camera as well, just letting it just just action just play out almost like theater that scene when they all come into the house and they're having breakfast and all the action is happening and the camera just like just slowly tracks in when you know john wayne oh yeah reunites that's, that's with ward cool, bond yeah. and then all the stuff with you know when 
Martha grabs the coat and you have Ward Bond just standing there kind of like looking like he's not paying attention to what's happening, but he is actually paying attention to what's happening. And just, you know, the way they use the landscape really well. I love seeing the searchers like two days, the day or two days after I got back from America and remembering all the places that we went around with, um, with our guide. What was his name? Larry? Larry. Yeah, Larry, and just seeing like and like saying something because I was watching it with Felina who hadn't seen the film, so I was like, "Oh, I remember we were there. I remember that. Oh, that's the totem pole, and oh, that that little bit there. We stood there, Adam. We took a photo on John Ford Point, and it's like looking. It's like nothing really much has changed except the you know modern stuff that's kind of come around it, but like the sort of geographically, it still stayed the same. And I think it was just wonderful. It was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, being in that area, like I think like you said to us it was uh, to me or to, to someone it was like walking around in our childhood which was just really, yeah. really nice well i mean and i think that's the, the clever thing about monument valley as a location is that it it's it's shiftless and it, it has an it's called monument valley for a reason it's, it's yeah. it is it is this like timeless place of 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 uh pre pre-life you know there was this was here before long before you know humans arrived and um, and it will be there for maybe long before we're gone, maybe long after we're gone. I mean, it, it and I think it it the way that he uses these landscapes to dwarf his characters is so um, is so compelling in that uh, in that film and and in others. But I think in in the searches especially, uh, Monument Valley does a lot of the work of the yeah. of the of the film. Um, you know, speaking of camera work in Vertigo, you've got that brilliant use of the camera to create disorientation and to create um obviously there's the famous the vertigo shot you know where you zoom in and pan out at the same time yeah. which is re- recreated in jaws but in um in vertigo 2 you have this 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 great use of of, of color saturation um that dream yeah. sequence is so creepy but and it's yeah. so well done i think and i mean also just bernard herman's score in that is just yes. amazing oh, we've got to talk about bernard herman i mean he yeah. was he he was also uh, consistent across his uh, across these Hitchcock movies. Um, like every score was different, and it just matched to the films perfectly. Yeah, yeah. North by Northwest score is sort of playful and exciting, and you know, almost sort of. It feels like a chase music. It feels like yeah. chase music. Psycho is 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 terrifying and and psychological and ominous. Yeah, and then this film, it's just sort of dreamlike, sinister, and cyclical, and it's like. It always really? feels like it's something creeping. It's like a ghost following someone around. Right. Kind of like. Da, 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 da. It's also like a like a sort of you know you know the way that they use spirals in the credit sequence. Yeah. I think it was designed by Saul Bass. I can't remember. Might but have been. He, yeah. Um, he certainly did the credits for North by Northwest. Yeah, I mean it's, but, but you know just again that like array of talent that's there that um, that um, just everyone just hit the groove with this yeah. movie everyone involved in it just put in their best performance the day you know, on, during that shoot mm-hmm. and, and the post-production um and yeah it's not as i don't think it's as fondly thought of in the hearts of hitchcock viewers as as some of the more entertaining movies like north by north by northwest is a great example you know it's so it's so accessible it's so entertaining it ends on a high note it's it's an adventure yarn it's romantic it's colorful yeah here you you are left being like at the end of the film <laughs> it's like oh it's so i remember watching it as a kid it was like there's really no happy ending oh that that, that sucks, sucks. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's, that's poor jimmy stewart 
Anyway, I think we should uh, bring our podcast to an end because we've been talking for a hell of a long time. Yeah. Um, should we just quickly round up uh, our uh, top tens really quickly? Again? Yes. You go. You go first. Right. At number ten, I had Pata Pacelli. Uh, at number nine, I had um, the Naked Spur. At number eight, I had La Strada. At number seven, I had All About Eve. Number six, The Seventh Seal. Number five, Night of the Hunter. Number four, Tokyo Story. Number three, The Cranes Are Flying. Number two, The Searchers. And number one, Vertigo. And my number 10 was 12 Angry Men, Lay Diabolique at number nine. Number eight, Lady and the Tramp. Number seven, The Night of the Hunter. Number six, Vertigo. Number five, The Big Heat. Number four, Sunset Boulevard. Number three, Sweet Smell of Success. Number two, Singing in the Rain. And number one, The Searchers. Boom. Yeah. Wow. Right. Okay. A lot of great films. And also a bunch of films I gotta to add to my watch list that just is just ever growing. Um for you too, listeners. You if you haven't seen any of these films, they're all terrific. Go and yeah. see them. I think I think the majority of them are readily available. So you they should be very easy to find. Yeah, we picked quite an accessible bunch of films. I don't think there's anything on there that's gonna to be too hard to get hold of. You could definitely get a hold of some of them on physical media, and I'm sure you can find some of them on streaming services like the Criterion Channel, or you can possibly rent them on HBO Apple. has a bunch of those, probably. Yeah, HBO Max, or Max, as it's called now, which is fucking stupid. But anyway, um, so yeah, we are still on Twitter. It's still up. Um, I, um, I I deleted it off my phone. You deleted it off your phone? Yep, so I'm not checking my Twitter anymore. So uh, yeah. you can tweet me all you like. Yeah, uh, or you can... there's shit on there. They, 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 that fucker's ruined it. So yeah, yeah. he's completely ruined it. Yeah, I feel like boxed. We yeah, are we're on Letterboxd. Letterboxd. We're also on Instagram. You can follow us there. I I post a lot of stuff about the podcast and a few things, other things on Instagram. But do follow us on Letterboxd. Um, we post a lot of good stuff uh, on both our pages, and you can see how different our sort of the kinds of films that we're watching and what what we're fans of and everything like well, that. How similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, anything else you want to plug? Nope. Um, I just look forward to the next one. So Yeah, uh, me yeah. too. So it's going to be looking at the 1940s, top 10 1940s. I feel like that decade, and I feel like we're getting into the point where I might have to do a little bit of homework. And because, uh, and also I feel like for, I feel like for you, the 1940s might be a difficult list to do. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the 40s for me is going to need uh, some serious, um, yeah, some serious discipline. I mean, I, I'm quite proud of this list because I was, as I say, it's representative, but there are so many films I had to leave off. Yeah. I mean, just going to look at the 1940s on my Letterboxd app here. And, um, you know, if I just, uh, let's see, sort by your rating, highest first. Um, there are, I have given five star reviews to three. 15 <laughs> films of the 1940s and uh there are a number of other four and a half star reviews oh this is going to be very very tricky indeed um so but it's fun it's all in good fun <laughs> oh yeah and also remember folks lists are bullshit yeah exactly yeah um i will just quickly plug uh, i've written a couple of posts or a few posts on our blog for um the new mission impossible film mission impossible dead reckoning part one uh, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, uh, Paul Schrader's film Blue Collar, and the recent Insidious film Insidious: The Red Door. So you can check them, check those out, and read as well if you like. I'll put the links in the uh, episode description. So yeah, 
Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, do check out the films that we've, we've mentioned and reviewed here. And um, yeah, have a good day, good summer and all that. Great. Yep. I second that. See you soon, folks. Bye.